Coming up on Life as a Festival. Returning to this concept of the, the mask and anonymity and this maybe slightly erotic, slightly dangerous undertone. There's a lot that I, I've heard and seen about people feeling transformed over social anxiety because of the darkness, because of the mask, because of a sense that they are and aren't themselves, that a lot of people who would feel more introverted, more socially anxious, have actually learned how to dance with other people with these extended eye contact moments, with this taking a performer's hand, with being with themselves in the dark. A longtime fan of the show actually shared that she feels more radically self-expressed in how she dresses because of attending the show, that she felt like she could understand how wanting to stand out more felt more essential to her than wanting to hide. Hello, my friends and fellow travelers. Welcome back to Life is a Festival. Today on the show, we are immersing ourselves in immersive experience design through one of the most iconic experiences of experience design that I have actually not experienced, but I am aware is an experience that many have experienced. Oh, gosh. We're talking about sleep no more. Now, I've personally never had a chance to go see the show, but I've seen other deconstructed theater in the round experiences that are similar, certainly not to the caliber of this event. It turns out that one of my friends happens to be the chief storyteller for Sleep No More. How about that? Ilana Gilovich-Wave, who is our guest on the show today, jumped into Sleep No More right out of college and started, as many young artists do, putting on all the different hats. This is a very hat-wearing episode, by the way. Just, I want to warn you in advance. Jumped in, putting on a bunch of different hats. And she worked the front desk. She was a performer in the show. And she grew over 12 years in Sleep No More to now being the chief storyteller. Now, as it turns out, Sleep No More is coming to an end. Sleep No More will be no more. And so you do have a chance to get tickets Currently, the run is till February 25th, 2024. That was pushed back, but you are unlikely to get another shot at this spectacular immersive production. So for today's episode, I wanted to talk to Alana about Sleep No More, about immersive experience design, about what it means to be a young artist making it in the world, and encourage you, dear listener, to potentially go see it if you happen to be in New York over the winter, and also to look at the example of her life as one that can be followed, particularly for those of you who are just starting out. On the show today, we open with the provocative question, why is it that we do not say the word Macbeth? And then we proceed to say the word Macbeth. <laughs> so that's kind of the tone of the episode. That and, and of course, Alana's very smart, but it's going to be a playful show, and I'm excited for that excited for you. We go into advice for young creatives who want to get into experience design. We talk about the dynamic ingredients that Punch Drunk uses for their productions, including derelict buildings and the anonymity created for the audience by the use of the classic Punch Drunk mask. We talk about the production itself, which is a marriage of Shakespeare and Hitchcock through movement. We discuss experience design and why good experience design is always transformational. And we end the show with a deep dive into one of my favorite topics, ephemerality, and the potency of an impermanent experience. And this episode gets into the erotic, and it ends with death. It's a whole Shakespearean adventure of its own, dare I be so hubristic. Alana is the chief storyteller of Sleep No More. And as I mentioned, she has been in the game for 12 years. Sleep No More is the New York City production of an immersive theater work created by the British theater company Punch Drunk, the brainchild of directors Felix Barrett and Maxine Doyle and the entire Punch Drunk crew. It is running in New York City until February 25th. There will be links to buy tickets in the show notes. So without further ado, here's my friend, the brilliant Alana Gilovich-Wave. First of all, can you please pronounce your full name for me? Yes. 
This is an excellent question. I realized at the ripe age of about 31, I'm 33 now, that I had been mispronouncing my name my whole life. You've been mispronouncing your own name. Yes. It's been a humbling realization, but I always said my name Alana, like an uh at the beginning. My mother-in-law is Israeli and Alana is a Hebrew name. And she said, oh, Ilana. Ilana is how you say it. And I went back to my parents and was like, hmm quick question, and this is going to sound weird, but what is my name? And they both said, oh, it's Ilana, like a soft I. And so now there are three potential interpretations kind of floating out there. So I say Alana, but I'm really fine with any pronunciation of my name. And I'm sort of charmed by the fact that it doesn't have a stable definition or sound. So it's Alana Gilovich Wave or Alana Gilovich. It's a, uh, a nice place to land on. It's a bit of a Schrodinger's cat experience. Yeah, exactly. That's how I feel about my sexuality, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> I have a desire for two things. One is sleep no more, immersive theater design. What does it mean to create this show, where it came from, what it feels like, get people excited about sleep no more. I've got a number of questions around that. And then two, this is very apropos to the audience and something that I love doing, is... How does one get into the kind of work that you do? How does a creative person end up sustaining their livelihood through doing something really cool? Those are my desires. Do you, Ilana? Sure, <laughs> yes, that feels right. Ilana, that's your, that's your rapper name. Great. Ilana. Great. Ilana, do you have desires? What would be a rock star performance for you? on Life is a Festival? Great question. I think I find most scintillating the moments when great pieces of art get to interface with one another. And I fervently believe that Sleep No More is an incredible piece of art. And I also fervently believe that Life is a Festival and Eamon Armstrong are a beautiful piece of art. And so I'm excited to see where the Venn diagram overlap is. And so I think where I'm most intrigued to go is thinking about the aims and the missions of this podcast, your specific interests, because I do think between the ethos of your work and Sleep No More, there's a lot of shared DNA. There is a propensity towards the erotic and danger. There's a sense of whimsy and play. There's a curiosity about experience design. And there's a a desire for unfettered freedom and roaming. Well, that answer is definitely going in the podcast. <laughs> Butter my bread. <laughs> you're going to get a good performance from me with all that flattery. I'm very responsive. To, to okay, great. Now I know what works. We'll just layer it on thick. Just layer it on thick. Well, with that juicy on-ramp, Alana, welcome to Life is a Festival. When you speak to a friend, and I'm lucky that I do speak to friends from time to time on this show, there is a foundational shared vulnerability, which mm. leads to more risk-taking sooner. And one of the things that I have enjoyed of Sleep No More, and to be clear, I have not been, which is silly when you think about it. I've been to other immersive theatrical productions, but there's a risk-taking element and a feeling of danger that is necessary. If you don't have danger, it's Disneyland. And I think there's an artistic risk in you wanting to talk about it without having seen it, which I really like. Well, yes, and. I mean, it does give me even more curiosity. So what if I saw it and hated it? Then we (laughs) might not even be having this conversation. That's actually one of the things that I really love about Sleep No More and I feel so privileged to be involved is it truly is not for everyone. It's quite a polarizing experience. And I think a lot of people leave feeling major amounts of FOMO with a choose your own adventure. I think of it a lot like how how you and I have spoken about Burning Man. Burning Man is not for everyone. But I think when attendees really become awake to the magic and possibility of that experience, it's very hard to go back. And I feel like that's that's very similar with Sleep No More is once somebody really gets it and is willing to fully embrace all the complexity and nuance and adventure of the experience it's truly addictive in the best possible way. I'm going to do something polarizing myself right now. There are three existing story ingredients 
in Sleep No More that I'm aware of. Mm-hmm. Likely a lot more, but three main ones. Hitchcock. Yeah. Salem Witch Trials. And Macbeth. Why do we not say Macbeth? And do you, at Sleep No More, say Macbeth? Or do you say the Scottish play? Quick amendment to that statement. It's not the Salem Witch Trials, although I wish it was. It's actually based in Scotland. It's a series of witch trials that took place in Scotland, hence the shared DNA with Macbeth. They're called the Paisley Witch Trials, and they were the last public execution of witches in Scotland in the 1600s. And this was an incredibly potent place that took place in the town of Gallo Green and Paisley in the square. And so that's why a lot of the lore around Sleep No More contains the word Gallo Green. We have a Gallo Green rooftop. There's a little town of Gallo Green in there. But yeah, those are the essential three narrative ingredients in the cauldron. You have Hitchcock's entire canon, which you see aesthetically a lot. The whole thing is very 1930s film noir influenced. Then you have Macbeth, which you're seeing a lot of the kind of theatrical memes that are contained within Macbeth. You see birds, you see bloody banquet, you see bloody babies, you see all of these kind of ingredients that are embedded within the the mise-en-scene of Macbeth. And then, of course, you have the Paisley Witch Trials. I personally am very comfortable saying the term Macbeth. I don't know if as a person in the theater, that is another risk-taking that shouldn't be happening. Does the cast say Macbeth? Because every interaction I've ever had with a theater person and the Scottish play is that they don't say it because it's such an extraordinary piece of bad luck. And I don't even know where that comes from, but I was just curious how orthodox the production is as far as theater is concerned. How orthodox are you? This is an amazing question that I think illuminates a lot of the context of Sleep No More culturally backstage because I think the genesis of the whole don't say Macbeth superstition is because there were consistently, there's a legacy of bad luck happening to productions of Macbeth. And because that happened so consistently across decades, there was a sense of don't say it and say the Scottish play instead. There's a similar superstition around don't say good luck in the theater. Yeah, that's break a leg. Yeah, break a leg. Little note for the audience, if you're not a theater nerd, which clearly we both are, (laughs) break a leg does not mean break your physical leg. What it means is that the leg was part of the apparatus for opening and closing the curtain. So if you got so many ovations that it actually broke the curtain, that would be break a leg. So break a leg basically means do such a good job that there are so many ovations that you literally break the curtain. Anyway, we'll probably do a lot of theatrical asides, but please continue. <laughs> yes, and I love this this little history cultural lesson. But I think Sleep No More, that's a great question about how orthodox. One of the things that I love about Sleep No More as a Shakespeare adaptation is it's primarily comprised of dancers. There are several actors in the production, but the idiom that, that Punch Drunk and Sleep No More and Immersive are using to tell this story is the idiom of contemporary dance. And so a lot of the cast members have dance training rather than theater training. Sometimes there's a lot of overlap, but you will find not very orthodox theater people. And I think that creates a really good backstage culture and shared embodied language. But also, I think it's just a very unconventional production in a whole bunch of ways. And we're going to get more into the production, and there'll be lots of time for storytelling in a bit. But I want to start with you, because you have had... Do I want to say worn many hats? You have worn many hats, and you have been in the production. I saw... I first saw Sleep No More while... It must have been the summer before my senior year of college, and I was blown away. I could not believe that I was taking in something of this size and scope and magnitude and instantly fell in love and felt like I needed to be a part of this. And so I joined the Sleep No More team three days after I graduated college. I finished on a Friday. I was there on a Monday as an unpaid intern. So I started at the very bottom was so excited to be a part of it. And then very quickly ended up working in all these other facets of the production. I started working front of house, coat check, check-in, started working as bar staff, started being part of the cast towards the end of 2012, and then worked on their private events and special events team. And now I work for Immersive, which is the production company, as their chief storyteller. So I think there's been a really nourishing 
cross-pollination between all of those hats, as you call them. And I think that's true for anyone wanting to get involved in immersive theater as a career, is there's so much that's interdisciplinary and multidisciplinary about this work that understanding it from every conceivable vantage point is really essential to wanting to do the most creatively potent and logistically sound work that you can. So we actually have this in common. You don't know this about me. The start of my career was doing unpaid social media management for Burning Man's off-playa events. That's how I got into everything that followed after that. And the advice that I often give to young creatives is find a way to do something you think is cool for free and get so good at it that people will throw money at you. And that's a great entry point because a lot of times, you know, you said you coming right out of college, a lot of times we just don't know how to access these worlds and these communities. And the thing is, if you're a creative person, you've got some ideas and you're young and willing to work for free, maybe you got like a job folding clothes at Banana Republic or waiting tables, whatever it is you're doing. I don't know if Banana Republic is still a thing, but I did that when I was 19. By going in and volunteering, you're building the skill set, you're building the relationships. And ultimately, if you work really hard, people will pay you because they'll want to keep you around. And as you become more skilled, people may want to poach you. I was working for Burning Man special events, then I started doing street fairs, and I could get people to go to events. So all of a sudden, people were like, oh, you can make money for me. So I'm going to pay you money to make money for me. And that led to festival reviewing and podcast, all the things that happened afterwards. But so yeah, we have kind of a little bit of a similar, me and Burning Man and and you and Sleep No More, it's kind of like a similar hat-wearing experience. I think this is a very hat-wearing episode for some reason. This feels like a hat-wearing episode for sure. should have worn a hat. Damn it. I I love hat. Hold on, I'm going to get a hat. One second. Okay, great. Oh yes, feels right. I would wear a hat, but I think it would interfere with this. Well, your headphones kind of are a hat. You know, breaking the fourth wall. I don't know if this is even breaking the fourth wall, but it's certainly improvisational. For the person who is just listening to the audio, I have just gone and collected a very quintessentially Burning Man sparkly marching band hat that is pink and orange and gold and full of flowers and sparkles. It suits you very well. Thank you. So let's get back to you because what we're talking about right now is entering into these creative spaces. Yes. And I wanted to put a coda on what you just said because I think it's so important and profound, which is there is a very potent and really fleeting ephemeral moment in your youth. I say in my ripe age of 33, but there's a moment in which you have boundless energy and your brain is a little bit of a sponge. And what a gift to be open to being transformed and imprinted by a sustained engagement with a specific piece of art. That feels so special to me that I entered the space at 21 when I was so open and ready to receive anything that this world had to give me. And I feel Sleep No More's indelible kiss on my life. I then went on to do a master's degree and a PhD in Shakespeare adaptation and theater and performance as a subset of English literature. Like, I think the two have informed one another. My thinking has changed as a result of this production, as I'm sure your thinking and dreaming has changed as a result of those early encounters with Burning Man. And so I think for anyone listening who is at that precious, precious age where you have the resource of time and the resource of energy to throw both arms around an experience, I would say do it. Wow, that's great. That's quite quotable. You know, when you're doing one of these, you kind of like have pull quotes in the back of your mind a little bit. I was like, oh, that's so good. Run that on TikTok and have like young artistic TikTok be like, I can do it too, which I'm not being flippant. It actually is really important, especially now, because we want to have creative roles because they fill us up so much. And what you're describing, which I think is so much a creative life, a life like a festival, is just doing, mm-hmm. prototyping by doing, getting in there. You're doing front of house. Maybe you don't love front of house, but all of a sudden you're a dancer and you're the one extending your hand in this mysterious way to some masked attendee. Mm-hmm. And then you went through all of these different roles and now you are in a role that you called storyteller. What's the official title of your current role at the 11th hour of Sleep No More? Yes, a chief storyteller, which is a very fun and suitably whimsical title for me, I think. 
Well, let's talk about that. What is a chief storyteller? What is it that you do? And what stories are you going to tell us today on the show? Because I'm expecting stories now. Oh, okay. I better deliver on these stories. Well, one of the things that I love about Sleep No More so much and Immersive in general, which is the production company that has a number of productions and venues. So in addition to Sleep No More, they also have Gallo Green, which is the rooftop bar. They have the Manderley Bar, which is a speakeasy bar within the McKittrick. They have the Club Car, which has its own programming. They host a whole bunch of other things like Speakeasy Magic, which if you haven't seen it, prepare to be razzled and dazzled. It's the most incredible magic show I've ever seen. And they have a lot of other exciting, mysterious projects in the works as well. And so for all of those projects, I'm thinking very carefully about how to be the voice of this production company. So thinking both about literal copy and translation, but also how to understand the different ways from an experienced design perspective that we are from start to finish engaging with an audience from the moment that they receive any correspondence from us all the way until they leave the experience and how that is wrapped up in a neat and mysterious way. Well, you have just given me your job description and now I'm going to make you do it. (laughs) (laughs) We are now at the point in the podcast where for someone who has never seen Sleep No More, Mm -hmm. who does not know even about this kind of deconstructed theater in the round experience. Mm. Tell me who Felix Barrett is. Tell me what Sleep No More is. Tell me how this thing blossomed in 2000. Give it to me, give it to us, our, our joyful listeners, but do it, in a, do it in the way that most aligns with the role that you have with the company. Tell us a story. Oh, I love this task. Okay. Okay, listeners, buckle up because you are going to be introduced to the Pied Piper that is Felix Barrett. This man could lead us all down a corridor of enchantment any day of the week, but he is a very smart, adventurous, probing, dynamic man who really started about thinking about sleep no more and theater in general as a three-dimensional experience. And he was really interested in theater being visceral, theater being immediate, and theater not being a passive experience in which you sit down in your seat and view something silently. But instead, he wanted people to leave the theater and say, I want to tell you what happened to me last night. And that's something that's very much on its feet and very much aligned with the kinds of experiences that you discuss on Life as a Festival. And he did some of this work as a student And then later in his early career, paired up with the incredible Maxine Doyle, who is the choreographer of all of Punch Drunk shows. And the Punch Drunk creative team together is what I imagine it would be like if the Avengers teamed up. They have a sound designer, Stephen Dobby, Livy and B, who do all the set design. They've just got this incredible think tank of brilliant creative people who are all collaborating to think about this three-dimensional experience. And They've done this with several shows and several texts, but typically what they do is think about the kind of building. They're usually going to derelict buildings, abandoned buildings, buildings that have a freighted history to them. They go into these buildings and see what kind of story wants to emerge. What kind of story does the space want to be told? So it's very much contingent on the kind of space that they find. That sounds, that's very New York, by the way. I feel like I've been to a lot of New York parties where it's like, what on earth are we going to do with this decrepit mansion? (laughs) Exactly. They, they're all British actually. So this is a New York and very London thing, but what they then do is think about how to best serve this story. They're usually using some kind of dramaturgical skeleton. So taking some kind of text, could be Shakespeare, could be any number of of films or pieces of literature. And then they're coming together to think about how they shape the building, how they shape the set itself as being a story here that wants to be told. And almost all of their pieces replace the audience, those velvet cushions, that's how you usually delineate between audience and performer, right? The performers are on stage, the audience are sitting in seats. And instead of using that convention, they use a mask. You'll see the signature punch drunk mask, which is a white kind of Venetian style looking beaky mask that audience members don. And then that's the distinction between performers who aren't wearing masks and audience members who are. And that lends, I think, an essential sense of anonymity to allow people to take risks, allow people to step beyond themselves. And so when you attend Sleep No More or any other Punch Drunk production, 
instead of sitting down and watching the show, you are wandering through this labyrinth of rooms, literally hundreds of rooms, all textured, temperatured, sound completely different. And you are choosing in a pick a path kind of way, which narrative you want to follow. And that could be rifling through the set to to examine all this meticulous detail, or it could be following performers and seeing what story wants to be told through their bodies. I want to tell a quick story from an interview that I heard with Felix, where he was talking about when they first introduced the mask. Early on, when they're prototyping it, they had a production with the masks, and a woman went up to him afterwards and was like, I don't know what happened. I put on the mask. I became a different person. I was sitting on an actor's knee. I think I ruined the play. (laughs) And he was like, oh, no, that's what we want. That's it. That's the thing. And so this mask thing... It's funny because we're talking about breaking the fourth wall, which the fourth wall is that wall between the velvet seats and the stage. So when we break the fourth wall, it's interesting that the mask comes in as almost a different kind of wall in a way. The permissiveness of the mask and the anonymity of it sounds like it's just an absolute key component. Mm -hmm. And I've done some immersive theatrical things and there wasn't that component to it. And I I can imagine that the difference for an audience member just in terms of permissiveness, in terms of interactivity with the performers, would be radically different if everyone is wearing a mask. And it's probably different for the performers themselves to be interacting with humans where if someone's conventionally attractive, maybe you don't want to interact with them because you're giving them the wrong impression of something, but they have a mask. So they're just, they're all kind of the same potential person that you're speaking to. Mm-hmm. I think that's exactly right. And one of the most sacred and specific moments in any punch drunk show is a moment when generally you're wandering around as an audience member in this space and you're masked, you're anonymized. And then suddenly a performer goes from looking at the space in a very vague way. And this is one of my favorite aspects of the punch drunk idiom is that performers are instructed to think like cameras. So we both think in wide shots, these sweeping panoramic shots where we're, our gaze gets really soft and our peripheral vision gets very soft so that we can take in the entire room. And this idea of these narrow close-up shots with hyper-focus. So there's these moments in which maybe I'm scanning the room, I'm there, and all of a sudden I lock in and I see you, Amen. Even through the mask, there's a moment and it's always the shivering suspended present that I look forward to so much where I've pinpointed a single audience member. I extend my hand and I bring them usually into an enclosed space where then I very slowly and ritualistically take off their mask. And there's a moment of true seeing, which feels so metaphorically hefty and potent to then reveal this person's face beneath their mask in private. And usually it's almost like the way that in musicals, performers burst into song because it's so heightened that they can't say those emotions in regular words. They have to be using lyricism and melody. It's the same thing in a a punch drunk show where there's this moment in which the mask does not suffice. And the character usually is having such a moment of intimacy that they need to see a person face to face. And so only very few people per night get to go on that very specific journey with the character. But that feels so precious. And some of my most cherished memories of Sleep No More are those moments. And, you know, you're speaking to something that I think ends up being a really interesting marketing play in that if only some attendees get to do certain special things and you have a group that comes together, they get split apart, someone goes to a place where they end up in like a hospital and someone else is like, I didn't know there was a hospital. You get people coming back, you get returned customers in a way that isn't the same as when you're doing a typical play, perhaps a play like Les Miserables. They've done it before, they've seen it, it's a different version of it, but they're not going to go see it again. So yeah, there's a little bit of like a marketing hack built into it as well. You're leveraging FOMO to expand the buzz around it afterwards and that people are talking about it. And then people are like, oh, you got to go to the mysterious seventh floor, which I've heard there's a mysterious seventh floor. I don't know if that's spoiling anything. There might be spoilers in this. I should have alerted you, but you know, I haven't been. But <laughs> there's a buzz around it. There's a desire to come again. There's a way that it's a living thing. But I imagine that also creates some challenges around the structure of storytelling. Are there major plot pieces that people might miss? If you have people scattered around the space, I went to a speakeasy themed immersive thing 
And I got totally lost about the plot of the thing. And I, I just got very confused. And I don't think I was in the right place for a specific plot thing. I imagine that you're playing a bit of 5D chess in terms of constructing something where all the important plot pieces are witnessed in such a way that you actually get a full storyline experience. How does that come together? How did you feel in that speakeasy experience? Did you feel frustrated, thwarted? Did you feel you were just along for the ride? What was your takeaway? I felt frustrated and thwarted. Yeah. I don't mean to disparage the production. This was some years ago. It was one of those things where there was like a social component with a bar, and I was with a group of people. And I know that this is the case with Sleep No More as well, that it's kind of a night out and a theatrical production, so you can hang out in the bar and drink with your friends if you want. So I think that my experience of that was I just like missed plot points. So then someone was like wailing and running by me, and I was like, I don't I don't really care about that person. <laughs> I don't know what's going on with them. So I, yeah, I guess the question is, how do all these pieces weave together mm -hmm. in such a way that you are having comprehensive storytelling for all attendees versus just wandering an interactive world, like a meow wolf or something? That's mm. a fantastic question, and it gives me permission to really don my nerdy Shakespeare hat now because I think listening and reading other Shakespeare scholars, they're often very critical of Sleep No More in terms of not, A, providing Shakespeare's language. It's all danced. I mean, every line of Macbeth is somewhere in the set or being interpreted through contemporary dance, but you're not going to hear the lyricism of Shakespeare's language line by line as you would in a typical proscenium production. And also you're not going to receive the narrative in a straightforward way in ways that can be quite frustrating to audience members. However, as someone who's been so steeped in the world of this play, I find it so refreshing and actually affirming of what Macbeth really is and stands for. One reason being that Macbeth is all about the cyclical nature of prophecy, right? It's this idea of the story being doomed to repeat itself inevitably. And so many contemporary adaptations of Macbeth that you see, like the Roman Polanski version, the Justin Kurtzel production, they're often, and these are both films, they're ending in such a way that you see that the narrative is going to repeat itself over and over again. And in Sleep No More, the structure of the production is that it's an hour of material looped three times in a three-hour event to ensure that audience members can see as much of the production as they possibly can, no matter where they are in the building. But I also think that really reifies what the source material is about, which is, okay, the witch's prophecy is happening and getting enacted with or without consent. I also think that there's something really fascinating about Macbeth being a tale that overlaps really well with the Hitchcock aspects of madness and suspicion and paranoia. And so there's something about the fact that you are not being served the entire story and the frustration becomes a kind of compost that actually feeds the suspense of the whole experience, particularly what a lot of Shakespeare scholars have said about Macbeth that's simultaneously so frustrating and so apt is that as audience members, we are starting to get denied essential pieces of the storyline. So when Macbeth starts, we are in it with Macbeth the whole time. We have all the same information that he has. He gets the prophecy. He hears it. He's speaking all of these monologues to us. As the play continues, he starts to distance himself both from Lady Macbeth, who's his ally and his teammate, but also the audience. And he starts saying these crazy revelations like, oh yeah, I'm keeping a spy in every servant's house. And you're like, dude, we didn't you didn't tell us this. Are you doing stuff without us now? And that's a similar experience to what Lady Macbeth is experiencing too. And so there's this sense of kind of a retreating from the main character that can feel so frustrating in traditional productions of Shakespeare. But also that very sense of denial and mystery is something that works for the production of the play. So in many ways, I see Sleep No More as being very much a contemporary adaptation of Macbeth in the truest sense, because it acts like a prophecy in that it gives us some of the information and then only afterwards do we see all the loopholes and all the ways in which we've been tricked or forbidden certain kinds of information. And I really, really like that. I did not have sex on my roadmap for our conversation today. Yeah, you okay. teased it in the beginning. Great. And when you talk about frustration and forbidden, 
I think about the erotic power, the magnetism of overcoming frustration, of something that you cannot have that you desire. And so that brings us to the eroticism in Sleep No More. I understand that there's nudity. It's a very physical production. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of movement. And I don't even have a question. I just want to talk about sex. <laughs> so, let's speak of the eroticism of this production and its film noir aesthetic and its, its smoky, dimly lit, come hither vibe. Yes. When I think about Sleep No More and Sleep No More's erotic underpinnings, I'm often thinking about a certain psych study and I'll find it so you can put it in the show notes, but it's about this idea that human beings often misconstrue arousal. And what they did in this psych study is they had couples and they figured out which sex you were attracted to. And they had you stand on increasingly higher bridges. And so the more perceived danger, the more your body was in a heightened state, the more attractive you found the person that you were on the bridge with. I can say that's true. That's yeah. correct. That is correct. 100% correct. And there's certainly some of that dynamic at play in Sleep No More, which is it is incredibly dark. It has a lot of mystery. It certainly creates an ambiance of fear, even though it is so far from being a haunted house. Nothing is going to jump out at you. I think one of the common misconceptions about Sleep No More is that it's like a haunted house or it's like the Tower of Terror. It's really meant to be like a film noir piece. So it's suspenseful and eerie, but not jump scare. However, I think that sense of walking into the darkness and feeling the arousal of fear also tends to get enmeshed with these beautiful dancers walking around and enacting the story, some of them nude. And so I think the eroticism to me doesn't detract from the sense of the performance. It actually feeds the atmosphere in a very generative way. Well, I'm not going to go down a thread of madness and eroticism because <laughs> it would be why too not? Why not? Well, that's the Easter egg. That, that gets people coming back to a future episode, right? Great. <laughs> we'll do madness and sex on an episode soon, I promise. Okay. So Sleep No More is ending. Yes. And this kind of caught me by surprise. It's one of those things where I, I always thought I would make it there. And I'm not going to be in New York before it ends. And I always thought I'd make it there. And now, all of a sudden, there's this scarcity, which I guess is also, scarcity is also erotic. Why is Sleep No More ending? It's a good question. I think the simplest, the simplest answer would be, I think it's time. And it's indicative of... A, an unfortunate, saddening trend in live theater right now, which is that post-pandemic, it's a very different economic climate to get people out of their houses and coming to the theater. I think the economic world right now is different, and also the sociocultural world is different. And I think we're also seeing this in the world of film as well, is like recognized IP, things like Barbie and Marvel movies and Mean Girls, the musical, are doing really well. And it's harder to figure out how to make something work that's telling a really unique story. And so I'm very impressed that the producers took the risk to bring Sleep No More back after its pandemic hiatus because it's really walking into an unknown, another risk. But I think having this borrowed time essentially is allowing Sleep No More to close on such a triumphant note and with a lot of spaciousness, I think, also for the cast and crew to really bid farewell to it and to feel that Sleep No More is ending with many of its mysteries still still live and humming for even the people who are involved feels really good. I love that it's like it's retreating from view in a way that I'm just like, oh, but I haven't unfastened all of your mysteries yet. But it feels really beautiful to have this quite conscious time to let go. And I've realized since finding out this information that I'm thinking constantly about death. And if we're going back to eroticism, like death being this deeply erotic galvanizing force that lends so much immediacy to your present life, I wouldn't want a life without death because death feels like it's keeping me so in focus, so present tense. And there's something about sleep no more right now that I've seen the edge come back with such a force because people know it's closing. There's such an immediacy in every performance. So it's strangely, it's so bittersweet, but also has been really fun. We do this at the end, but 
it works to do it now. When does it end? And we'll have links in the show notes if people want to catch some of the last productions. But just while we're on the subject of the ending, when does it end so that people can be sure that they don't miss it if they haven't had a chance to see it? Yes, it is scheduled to end on February 25th, 2024. I want to come back to you. Mm. And what I'm curious about is I'm curious about experience design principles. I'm curious for our listener who wants to do something small at a party, who wants to get into this as a career, who wants to make the next sleep no more. What have you learned? What are some surprising things, perhaps, that you have learned about effective experience design? Mm. That's a great question. It feels probably akin to what you've, you've answered in your episode about what it means to be a good podcast host. And you talk about it's almost like chipping chipping away at the aim and personality structure to create a really streamlined version of what's necessary in this moment. It's similar to, I, I would assume, any art form, but it's especially important in experience design to be so cognizant of what the audience needs and to be scaffolding information based on an audience's experience. And so in many ways, it's reverse engineering what you need. You need to know how to ask the right questions every single step of the way. So as opposed to saying, this is what my production of the glass menagerie is going to be. And I don't really need to think about what the audience is thinking. Of of course you do to a certain extent, but they are all one entity, right? They're all sitting in the same seats. And yes, they will have different physical sight lines, but essentially it is all one amoeba. Whereas let's say that you were doing a production of the glass menagerie in an old (laughs) derelict mansion, as we talked about in New York. And you want to think about the different pacings at which people walk. You want to be thinking about the staggered entry times. You want to be thinking about how much of the narrative people are going to see is you really want to allow enough spaciousness to think about every inevitability and variance within the audience and really plan for that. So it's giving yourself enough space and time to ask every conceivable question of that experience and then do your best to answer them. In your position with Sleep No More, I imagine that you get a fair amount of feedback. Would that be accurate? That you interact with audience members, perhaps press, that sort of thing. What are some bits of feedback about Sleep No More that you've heard? Perhaps how it might have been impactful or, dare I say, transformational for an attendee. What are some of the things that you've heard from the audience themselves going through this immersive experience that has created value for them? One, I'm aware of the fact that we are on our phones constantly and don't particularly want to be. And so when we go back to this idea of restraint and denial, there's something really good about taking people's phones away for three hours and inviting them to be in their bodies. So for myself as a performer, as well as the attendees, I think any any experience that you can have that feels like a present tense lived in experience, I would tend to think is a good one. I also think for many people, a lot of community has sprung up around the show, both in terms of the cast and crew itself, but also fan bases, people who are so deeply loyal to the show that they've seen it hundreds, if not thousands of times. And Sleep No More is a show that inherently you are scampering off in your separate directions and you are experiencing completely different things like we talked about with the FOMO. And so a whole culture has emerged around the postmortem, around the deconstruction of coming together to talk about this experience. And that to me seems like such a beautiful foundation for community is talking about art together and how it lands with you. I also think returning to this concept of the mask and anonymity and this maybe slightly erotic, slightly dangerous undertone. There's a lot that I've heard and seen about people feeling transformed over social anxiety because of the darkness, because of the mask, because of a sense that they are and aren't themselves that a lot of people who would feel more introverted, more socially anxious have actually learned how to dance with other people with these extended eye contact moments, with this taking a performer's hand, with being with themselves in the dark. A longtime fan of the show actually shared that she feels more radically self-expressed in how she dresses because of attending the show, that she felt like she could understand how 
wanting to stand out more felt more essential to her than wanting to hide. So I have actually seen really transformational experiences as a result of this show. I had someone write me an email that said, I've I've run many marathons. I've been to this many countries. I've had this many relationships and like nothing will touch this experience for me, which felt really moving to be on the receiving end of. Wow, that is high praise. I also am a big fan of inspiring self-expression. So good on your long-term fan for dressing a little more of an, in an eye-catching way. So Sleep No More is ending. I have no doubt that there'll be some kind of reunion tour that pops up some years in the future. But what is next for the team and what's next for you? Where do you go? And this is actually relevant for our listeners who have managed to land excellent gigs. Where do you go after you've spent 12 years working on a particular creative project? Hmm. Well, I in particular am very blessed to get to continue with this company and their new projects, which I wish I could disclose, but can't, but I will. Wait, whoa, whoa. What do you mean you can't? I am expecting an exclusive. I feel that I deserve one. Can you give us anything? My my NDA is cloaking me in all these different layers, all these hats, but I will say that I would definitely follow immersive. I would get to sleep no more as fast as you can because I think you're going to want that as an experience that you can hold up next to the kinds of exciting developments that immersive has right around the corner. But I will also say that I, again, love it when any art form wants to talk to another medium or another discipline. So one of the things that I love about any kind of immersive performance or experience design is when someone takes the formula and the trope and thinks about how to do it differently. So I think we've seen a lot of immersive theater that is erotic, that is nonverbal. And so when I see that change, for example, I saw production of The Jungle at St. Anne's Warehouse, which was the most compelling and urgent example of using this art form because it was the story of refugees set in a refugee camp. So everyone in the audience was part of this refugee camp. And so to get to see a very traditional kind of play set in this immersive medium changed the game for me. So I think if you're someone who's had a career in immersive theater and you feel familiarized with the tropes and you feel familiarized with the contours of what immersive theater means, Try to think about how to push that boundary and think about how you can come at it from another perspective. What does an immersive musical look like? What does an immersive gaming situation look like? What does it mean to have a dialogue across mediums? I think there's a real hunger for that in many different areas. And if you have any curiosity about an aspect of immersive theater that you haven't seen explored, chase that down because I think there's a hunger to experience that kind of, of refreshing viewpoint. In your role with Sleep No More, did you check out other immersive worlds, theatrical productions? Have you gone and done a little market research and seen what else is out there? Yeah, so my current role is relatively new, but I will say as someone who has been with the cast for over 10 years and is just very inherently interested in this kind of work, it's wonderful because there's a whole culture of people with immersive experience. There's a whole part of the dance world and the theater world of people who really want to specialize in these productions. So often just because I'll have friends in these other productions, I'm really interested in going to see them. And one that I really loved in particular was Third Rails, Then She Fell, which I don't know if you saw, but it was, it was the story of Alice in Wonderland told in a very small, contained, but... Oh, just exquisite way and felt both similar to Sleep No More and also very different from Sleep No More in ways that really surprised and delighted me. Actually, my first, my first immersive theatrical production that I went to was Alice Underground in London, which I took a woman named Annie Ellis to as a date after meeting her going to a festival. And it was interesting, we did that. And then I went right afterwards to Boomtown Fair Boomtown Fair being the most immersive theatrical production of a major large-scale festival that I was aware of at the time. I'm, I'm not sure if that's still the case. 80,000 people with nine different districts of immersive worlds. So there's a hunger for this kind of interactive participatory experience. And I think with productions, you want to give the people what they want 
and people want to play and they want to be involved. One thing that has popped up, I go to a, a small immersive theatrical psychedelic party. And in this one, you can change the outcome of the production. In the storyline, the audience can actually impact how it ends. So they have to develop a couple different endings and run them and produce them, which takes a lot of time and effort. And it only happens once. It's a single party it's a single immersive experience. They've got different endings that they've prepared and they're only ever going to run one of them. It's so interesting what's out there, like what you can create and how much people are willing to put so much effort into like a one-shot cool thing. It makes me happy. Yeah. I'm glad that we do this. I'm glad that we make art. I'm glad that we can sustain our livelihoods with art and I'm glad that we can make art without sustaining our livelihoods in other ways. And we can do these crazy one-shot immersive experiences where it may be an pivotal, life-changing moment for someone. Or it may be someone might just be in a K-hole and miss the whole thing. Did you visit the Tower of Babel this year at Burning Man? I didn't. I had a plan to do a bunch of things on Saturday because uh-huh. I was interacting with workshops and different parties and seeing people. And I was going to do a big art thing on Saturday and then the rain came. And so anyway, long story for a short answer. No, I did not go. Well, that was that was my favorite. That and the Ukrainian hedgehog were my two favorite pieces of art this past year. And I have only been to two burns, but they were exclusively art heavy. And I really went off on my own on my little bike and was very... <laughs> I was a little bit of a hermit who just wanted to interface with the art, but I was so enamored with this piece. It was this giant Gothic cathedral that was so meticulously designed and I could not fathom how it was going to be burned at the end of the week. And I had the great lucky fortune to meet Michael Garlington in one of those magical, mysterious, seemingly spontaneous Burning Man ways. And he spoke about it being like the mandala that you just blow away and that you have to kill your darlings and not be precious about and just completely surrender to the ephemerality of all things. And I love that. I love that about art. I think so much about my favorite play and performance in a play that I've ever seen is my patron saint, Mark Rylance in Jerusalem, which is the best performance of a living actor on stage and screen that I've ever seen. And there was a lot of pressure put on him to make a film of that play because it was so good. And it was so, I mean, the way that reviewers talk about it in such hyperbole and such superlative praise, it's just, it's unbelievable. And he really felt like, no, this is a live embodied medium. I don't want it transferred to film. And there's something about the integrity of that, that I'm, I'm so appreciative of. So I did see the Babel burn. I didn't go into it, but I saw it burn. Did you see it burn? No. Okay, so check this out. It's actually one of my favorite artistic things that I've seen at Burning Man. It was burned in such a way that a silhouette of Larry Harvey emerged in the fire. So they had this silhouette of Larry Harvey, and it was obviously him with the hat, like you could tell, and everything was burning around it, but it wasn't burning. So there was just this thank you, Larry, thing right in the middle, which is so cool. And the thing about the value of something in its ephemerality is so meaningful in the context of Sleep No More coming to an end. Also, festival culture, Burning Man, and this podcast, which is not coming to an end, by the way. But Here we go. Here's the big reveal. I'm over it. I am starting a new thing, but I'm going to keep this one going. So my second burn, 2011, had the Temple of Transition. And the Temple of Transition was like these towers with rope bridges. You don't really play in the temple these days, but this was a temple you played in. It was so beautiful. And I remember being so pissed that they were going to burn it. I was like, why are they burning this? They could just put this somewhere and people would just play on it. And a friend of mine who had been... Max Poynton, who'd been to Burning Man many times and ended up making the lighthouses some years later, was like, well, the whole point is that you burn it. The whole point of it is that you burn it. Because if you knew you could see it again, would you connect with it this deeply? Mm. At the end of the week, it burns. And the fact that it burns is what creates your immediate experience now. If it doesn't burn, then you're like, okay, well, I'll interact with it, but maybe I'll see it later. It's the femorality is key. And to me, that's a huge part of life as a festival. Life is a festival in part because it ends. The festival of life ends. And I am not the first person to say this. There is an allegory of the festival from the Stoic philosopher Epictetus. Yeah, you'd think it was the hedonists who thought that life was a festival, but it turns out to be the Stoics by some sort of reversal. And you know what? I actually have the quote, and Epictetus writing in however many BCs said, 
No, you say, but I wanted to go on with the holiday. Yes, so do the initiates in the mysteries want to go on with the initiation. And no doubt the spectators at Olympia want to see still other athletes. But the festival has come to an end. Leave. Depart as a grateful and reverent spectator departs. Make room for others. Yet others must be born even as you were born. And once born, they must have houses and provisions. Life is a festival because it ends. I had an ayahuasca ceremony once where I had a conversation with death. And it was one of those ayahuasca ceremonies that was like very vivid, full transportation. I'm lying on a yurt somewhere and I'm just like fully talking to death. And I was pissed because I just had this oneness of all things experience and everything was, was beautiful. And then it all withered and died and it was just me talking to death. And I was pissed and I was like, death, what the fuck, dude? Why did you kill everything? And he's like, look, it's really not on me to tell you this. That's really not my job. But what I can tell you is that death is not the end. Death is one part of the cycle. If there's no death, there's no cycle. Mm -hmm. If there's no death, everything just piles on top of each other. There's no possibility for anything to be new if things do not end. Mm -hmm. And so with Sleep No More, how could there be something new if Sleep No More doesn't end? Yeah. So Immersive continues. There are new projects ahead and you have donned your cloak of NDA, which is a very Dungeons and Dragons thing to do. And you will not tell me what it is, which I will never forgive you for. <laughs> no, I forgive you. It's okay. I know you got a job to do. But yeah, part of the reason life is a festival is because it ends. Mm -hmm. Part of how we are able to engage with things is their ephemerality. It gives us a potency. And also, what doorway could death be? What doorway is any ending? And when something comes to a close, it is simply the opening of something new. And I'm delighted to see what the next version of Sleep No More or whatever immersive experience it is. And the next one I promise I'll go see. And maybe we can do another podcast. I love this. I love that it feels, I may be wrong, but my instincts are telling me that we are coming to a close of this episode. And it feels right that it would maybe end in the realm of death. And I think I once heard a friend say, this is a little trippy, so walk with me here is the idea that death is the most inclusive force on earth. And so until we can learn to be as inclusive as death, we will never be immortal. Ooh, yeah. that's nice. I like that a lot. I want the full spectrum of experience of life and death feels like part of it. I feel that I would be robbed of some essential ingredient in to return to sleep no more, that loop, that sense of returning. I have a friend who went to a piece, it wasn't James Terrell, but it was someone like James Terrell. It was a light installation artist. And you started in one place and the first room was yellow. And then you continued in a circle. When you came back to the original room, it was green, but not because the light had changed, but because your eyes had adjusted in all the subsequent colors that you came back and saw that light anew. And I have no idea what happens after death, but I'm so invested in the concept of compost. I'm so invested in matter recycling itself and knowledge acquired in this short and precious and crazy, complicated life. And so there's something about sleep no more that feels like it has acquired layers of sediment that everyone who's walked through those doors, be it performer, be it patron, has left their mark in some irrevocable way that feels like it was transformed and it's this kind of living archive. And yeah, much like Burning Man in the Sands, like it is there, it lives there even as it's disappeared. And so let's fucking go. And I think where we will end our conversation is talking about something, someone, who is there even though they have disappeared, which is our mutual friend, the beloved Eviatar Frankel who died of cancer this summer. We were both friends with Ev, and Ev, I'm just, I did a whole podcast on Ev, but I'm happy to bring him into this one yeah. so we can give a little nod to Eviatar. But Eviatar demonstrated to me that it is not the length of the life, but it is the grace of the transformative experience. It's the grace of the letting go. It's not what happens when you die, because who could possibly tell, but what grace can you have in that process? And I just want to, our last hat moment, I will take my hat off Mm. to Eviatar Frankel, our dear friend who showed us how to die with grace this summer and who is both definitely somewhere else and doing some other cool shit and also reverberating in his way through all of the people that he touched and the communities that he was a part of. 
And so we miss you, Av, and uh, just want to <laughs> squeeze you into a podcast right at the end. Why not? I think so much of there's a a Sam Harris podcast episode in which he interviews Roland Griffiths about his terminal cancer diagnosis. And God, if you want to cry and feel enlightened, do listen to that episode because Roland Griffiths, who recently passed, talks about this idea of feeling like, what a gift my death sentence has given me. What a life am I now living? And one of the things that he was surprised by is how so many people wanted to meet him with sorrow and solace and how he felt like he really wanted to seek out places where he could feel exuberant in it. And one of the things I'm just perpetually in awe about is how Eviatar was so expansive and invited everyone on his journey, gave us the gift of experiencing death in life. And I think he remains one of the most alive people that I know. And his legacy is just pouring into every human being. The explosion of love that death created makes me have more reverence for him and makes me have more reverence for death than I ever would have without him. Well, we sure did it on the show today. We did sex. We did death. (laughs) We said Macbeth a bunch of times, which we're not supposed to do. Yeah, it's true. It's really true. But I'm so grateful to be able to talk about Sleep No More with you because I think very much in keeping with our dialogue, Sleep No More, like all provocative art, I think, is a springboard for talking about the great questions of life, like what preoccupies us, what enthralls us. And that's something you do so well on the podcast. So it's been such a pleasure to have Sleep No More be one of those those entryways. Well, it's been such a pleasure talking to you and getting to know you better. I didn't know you had a PhD. (laughs) There's a moment on the show where I was like, I do not ask my friends enough questions. (laughs) (laughs) To be fair, I didn't talk about it a lot because I was in it emotionally and psychologically. And I was like, let's just get this done as much as possible. But yeah, I've graduated in May. So I'm I'm doctor along with which I should say. Doctor. Not the real kind of doctor. Don't need to do anything to prevent you from dying. I'll just help you along the way with literature as you die. (laughs) Just give you a good thing to read while you're at death's door. Well, gosh, it's been such a pleasure. And it's been a pleasure to experience your journey with Sleep No More. We did early career and death and, you know, the beginnings, the endings. And I think that... I'm so excited for young people today, but I know that there's so much anxiety and terror around the economy, around climate change, around whether people can live a beautiful, expressed life, making a living, doing things that they want in the modern world. And you can. There are ways to do so. And I love that you've paved a path for that on this show while giving us an insight into the sexy, macabre world of Sleep No More. And I hope that you, dear listener, have a chance to go to New York and see it. I unfortunately will not be able to because I will be out of the country. But it's such a pleasure having you on the show and to talk to you about your passion for this incredible theatrical production. And I'm really excited to know what's next. So please tell me first. I will. You'll be the first in the know. Ilana, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Eamon. You're the best. Boom. How'd that feel? How'd we do? I ask you. I know how it felt. I mean, I, I love you. it. I knew it would be great because you're great at this and I've listened to like every episode. Thank you. Did we leave anything on the table? I don't think so. I don't feel like we did either. I, I think that there was a moment where I was like, should we like be excavating Sleep No More even more? But I actually am glad we didn't because I feel like what we were doing is like the five blind dudes touching the elephant. I feel like we did five blind dudes touching an elephant kind of thing where it's like, here's an erotic piece and like, here's how it's confounding and frustrating. And here, I don't feel like we took anyone into the center of it. And I like that we didn't. I like that we were peripheral and we stayed mysterious. This is actually something that I didn't mention that I feel like you would like, which is Keats said about Shakespeare. He was like, Shakespeare has this thing called negative capability, which is the ability to excise any over-explicating and really keep things archetypal and global. And that's why Shakespeare is so universally beloved and enduring 
because these characters can hold so much over time by what we're denying. So for example, like the character of Hamlet, is he crazy? Is he just acting crazy? Is he becoming crazy because he's acting crazy? And there's enough ambiguity in there that the story can be told a million different ways. And so there's something about Sleep No More that I think is very loyal to this idea of negative capability, which is like, we're not going to spoon feed you everything. We're not going to be explicit. We're inviting you into the mystery. And so I think doing that on the podcast a little bit and not giving the game away feels very aligned. Oh, how nice. And you know, that's the thing with emergent art, which I try to I try to do on the show. There's this emergent thing where I use a roadmap, not a list of interview questions, because the beauty is in the emergence. The beauty is in the things you can't think of, in the dynamism, that joke that turns into a question and that question that gives you pause. And that's what makes it more fun for me. So of course I do that because it's way more fun. I'm not an interviewer. That wouldn't be very fun. I'd be like, what year was it when this boring thing happened? That's not my jam. But I did like the mystery. And I have this, you know, the noir, the purple light, the smokiness, the extended hand. And when you were talking about the lifting of the mask, it was like, oh, yeah, that's hot. The whole thing was very sexy, by the way. Right. (laughs) So, dear listener, thanks for getting into the Sleep No More episode. Eros and madness to come. Yes. Done. Okay. That's the end. Part two. Thank you for joining us for Life is a Festival. If you like the show, you can support it by sharing it with your friends, following it on Spotify, or reviewing it on iTunes. If you'd like to get more involved, you can join our Facebook group, Life is a Festival, where we talk about the show and you can suggest new guests. If you really liked the show and maybe want a little bit more, visit my digital tip jar at patreon slash lifeisafestival.com. Whatever you do, I hope today's podcast helped you make your life just a little bit more like a festival. And I'll see you on the dance floor.